0: You're listening to The Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart, And I'm Jared McKenna. And this is Inverse.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Julie Kerr here. I'm the producer of Inverse. I'm popping into your ears quickly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all around the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the weekend, which tends to focus on Indigenous texts and subversive seminary during the week. That focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group, which is currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the vantage point of Africa and the African diaspora. We also record these episodes in community, and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate. All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the following episode.
2: I am excited to introduce our guest today. It's not just any guest, but it is uh, both a friend and a colleague of mine, and it is Dr. Emerson Powry. He joined the Messiah faculty as professor of biblical studies in 2008. Um, His research, writing, and editing relates to the New Testament, including Jesus reads scripture, true to our native land, and African-American New Testament commentary, Um, And his most recent publication is The Genesis of Liberation, Biblical Interpretation in the Antebellum Narratives of the Enslaved, uh, which engages the function of the Bible in the 19th century slave narrative tradition, including the narratives of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Jacobs. Um, and we could say so much more about all his scholarship. I always tell folks he's a scholar, scholar, just brilliant, thoughtful, and I'm so grateful to have him as a colleague at Messiah University. I'm also glad that my communities can merge and that I can share him with the uh,
3: Inverse community
2: as well. So Emerson, welcome to Inverse Podcast. Great.
3: Thanks. Thanks for having me, Drew. Yep, absolutely.
0: Dr. Emerson, we're we're really excited that um, you have chosen a particular passage that uh, uh, your expertise um, uh, is met by our passion. So w- would you like to share with everyone um, the particular passage you'd like to lift up in our time together today?
3: Sure, thank you. Thanks for having me, Jared, as well. Um, we're gonna look at uh, Mark chapter 11, and I'm gonna read uh, just the first 11 of verses from the Common English Bible. When Jesus and his followers approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus gave two disciples a task, saying to them, Go into the village over there. As soon as you enter it, enter it, you will find tied up there a colt that no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, Its master needs it, and he will send it back right away. They went. And found the colt tied to a gate outside on the street and they untied it some people standing around said to them what are you doing untying the colt they told them just what jesus said and they left them alone they brought the colt to jesus and threw their clothes upon it and he sat on it many people spread out their clothes on the road while uh, while others spread branches cut from the fields those in front of him And those following were shouting, Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. After he looked around at everything, because it was already late in the evening, he returned to Bethany with the twelve.
2: All, right. all righty now. All righty now. All right. well, before obviously, I'm excited about hearing you dive into that text, um, certainly a passage that I love and have preached from a few times before. Um, but before we do that, what we really want to do is to learn more about your own story. Um, we really believe that that um, when we're thinking about even um, engaging in biblical interpretation, um, that uh, our story and our theology all come together in one. And so we like to hear um, your own um, experiences. And I'm, I imagine I might have heard glimpses of this, but I'm not really sure where you're gonna go. But but if I were to ask you like, where, when do you remember uh, first encountering the Bible? I'm curious what kind of stories come to mind, what memories come to mind as you think about early encounters with scripture?
3: Yeah, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, right? I mean. Mm-hmm. My earliest encounters were in family Bible study, family prayer meeting, which my parents were uh, quite diligent about. Uh, so I have two older brothers and I have a sister after me and a, and a younger brother, so five of us. And uh, it, it's hard for me to remember a night in my childhood when we didn't have prayer or, and oftentimes bible study before bed so and then in the morning before we left there was also a time for a little bit more uh it was always get ready for school get your clothes ready get your breakfast but always a few minutes there needed to be a few minutes for a shout out you know and um and then there was a a, uh oftentimes what what scripture have you memorized you know what scripture have you memorized so the lord is my shepherd i mean just just tons of scripture that we had to memorize. Uh, and so it's hard for me to actually pinpoint the earliest time because I just kind of grew up around scripture like that. Um, and I mean, it's interesting now, my parents are still alive, approaching 90 now, but it's interesting now to talk to my parents about those, about my early years, right? Yeah. Uh, and to just kind of remind them uh, and so uh, about the impressions I had as a child uh, around, particularly around scripture and around reading uh, biblical texts. So uh, lots of early memories, lots of early studies. And even now, you know, when I, even though I've had an opportunity, uh, been very uh, fortunate and have an opportunity to to engage in uh, not just original languages, Hebrew and Greek and other uh, ancient languages, but even to, to delve into uh, serious uh, translation types of, of studies. Um, it's amazing to to be able to um, to recall, or, or, or I should say it this way: any any attempt at recollection of a biblical passage always comes from the King James, right? So that, that's that's <laughs> so, what we remember. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah, that's, right. so, that's right. I look <laughs> to the
3: hill from what's coming? My help, my yeah, help, yeah. comes that's from right. the Lord, right? So so all of that is just. Yeah. And I can't even, and I've tried, I've tried, I had, I had a few years where I was trying to memorize another translation and it just wasn't quite sticking like those <laughs> early years, right. Of, yeah. uh, of that impression of those texts. So, um, uh, I have a, um, um, an uncle who uh, passed away a number of years ago, my mother, one of my mother's oldest brothers. And, uh, he had, uh, uh he passed away in early stages of Alzheimer's and, um, uh, as he was losing his memory, the last time I actually saw him was in church and in a family church. And, um, um, and he stood up to speak and, and I know there was some hesitancy on the part of the family because of this, this early stages of losing his memory. And he just started to cite the gospel of John, uh, right in the beginning was the word and the word was, and he just, and just, and then he was in chapter three before, you know, it. He had and I said to my I leaned over to my mother because I just couldn't remember, you know, Uncle Martin. And she's because she used to tell these stories about Uncle Martin. And I said, she said, oh, yes, Emerson, he can do the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, first, you know, so she just named the books that he had. And I thought, wow, it's a powerful kind of tradition. Um, Wow. uh, uh, So so that's phenomenal. Really, really really good memories, early rich memories around around biblical texts and memorization, right? The role of memory. Uh, which is which has kind of been uh, interesting to think about the importance of memory in not only in Christian tradition and in our story and how we tell our story, but how it affects you know larger national stories. Yeah, uh, issues yeah. of memory are kind of at the forefront of conversations now, uh, and it's really important for Christian history and and, and Christian memory and uh, biblical languages, biblical translation, and, and what and how we remember, right? So mm. um, so I think, think often of my Uncle Martin, uh, even though I guess that's been, uh, I was around, uh, uh, it's been 20 years, uh, 1999, he passed away. So
0: mm. wow.
3: 22 years yeah.
0: now, so yeah. Yeah. Doc Emerson, that's, that's so powerful. We, we often, as a follow-up question, ask on, on the continua, continuum of like liberating and oppressive, in, in your journey, um with the scriptures where would have you placed yourself um uh, have you always experienced the scriptures as something that is liberating are there times when um you, you've had to struggle um with the scriptures being used in in oppressive ways how, how would you narrate um that part of your journey
3: yeah i mean i think that that's a really interesting question right because i mean i grew up uh, as i mentioned in a family in which uh, scripture was always, uh, supportive, always, you know, a positive voice in our spiritual journey. And, um, there are just kind of moments from my childhood that I can remember. So I can think of like when I was 10, I have an older brother who was 16, who had broken off from the church we were all going to and started going to another church. And I remember those tense conversations around the dinner table uh, with my parents. My parents were much more ecumenical than my oldest brother at that point and probably still so to, to, uh, today. But, but at that point, it was, it was really tense, right? Because there was this tension around uh, the, the right church, who goes to the right church. And that often then got caught up into conversations around scripture. And I can still remember now my parents ending those conversations with something like the way Christians read scripture varies. There are lots of different ways to reading scripture, right? So there was this kind of emphasis on difference is, is good, Difference, different ways of reading scripture are good. And my brother would not have anything, my 16-year-old brother would not have anything of it, right? I mean, there was there was a proper way to read it. There was a, and so that was my kind of early sense of, Well, this is really much more exciting than what happened. I mean, there's some real tension in here that as as a 10-year-old, I found quite attractive. I mean, I wasn't turned off by it. I was kind of engaged by that. Um, And and I think uh, when I look back, uh, it was in my early 20s when I actually pinpointed those early tensions around the dinner table, particularly around scripture and Christian tradition. Uh, and denominationalism. I mean, those early stories really kind of shaped some of my trajectory. I didn't realize that until my early 20s, Mm. how important that was. I mean, it it actually attracted me to the conversation, right? It was no longer just memory and take this verse for the day. There was something really at stake, it felt like, uh, in in those conversations. And so and I was, I mean, I was on my parents' side through those early years, right? So I wasn't on my sibling side. And uh, he kind of, you know, when we talk and joke about it now, he reminds me of that, right? So, so we have these conversations <laughs> about those about those times. Um, but I was attracted to the sense that lots of different people can read differently. That was okay, yeah. right? And so that was affirmed by my my parents and, and challenged by my brother. Um, so, uh, so, so in a sense. Uh, you know, generally, my experience in those early years was quite positive uh, outside of those kind of high tense moments. It, it, along the way, there were other times, right? Other experiences. So, my, my father, uh, who had a very radical conversion uh, in his teenage years, came to faith un- under the preaching of a woman. And, uh, and it's something that has shaped our family's history. So, the fact that he came to faith under the preaching of a woman. And yet we as a family have been in and out of some Christian circles where women in ministry was called into question, right? And that was always kind of a, that was one of our stories, one of our local family uh, traditions that was really important to us. So if the tension got too high, if women were not uh, allowed or engaged in a certain kind of way, then we had to kind of step back because mm. dad came to faith under the preaching of a woman. I mean, that was, that was, that was kind of crucial for us. So, so I realized that here, here again, right, was a wrestling with scripture and trying to think about uh, ways that this um, interpretations of the text and the, and even the text itself could be both uh, used for good and then used for other purposes. Right. So, right. Mm. Um, so that, that, that experience, uh, has, has also stayed with me and, and has become then part of, my, in some ways I think it, uh, a crucial part of my own trajectory in my, in my work, um, in my research and writing and, and thinking and, and stuff that started to happen when I got to grad school. Uh, those early experiences became much uh, more formative for me. Uh, it, just, it became clearer, right? It became, it became those parts of the memory that really started to, sh- to shape the way I was thinking um uh, and so when some of my more uh know, just call them more, you know more conservative friends around scripture these are some of the stories I would pull out as a way of saying well you know I think there's some room here we need to allow for some flexibility we need to right so scripture can point in a variety of directions and so uh, and and for me it was important it was important to have something from my family that I could draw I didn't want to I always felt like, even in the in the moments of the most tension, when I felt like I was really when I was engaged in critical biblical studies, and uh, my, my father's a retired minister, and and uh, even even then uh, he was nearing retirement as I was going through early uh, critical studies, and so we had some really really heated conversations, um, and both his commitment to that sense of variety of ways of reading and his love for his children that those are the things that kind of kept me attached right so whereas in my young 20s i was ready to break it all you know hey if we we don't if we don't agree theologically you start your church on your corner and i start mine on uh my parents would have nothing of that you know that was let's just go to sleep and and we'll meet again in the morning you know um so those really kind of helped shape uh, my trajectory around the study of scripture, um, for sure. Yeah, that's good, that's so good.
2: So I'm, I'm curious, Emerson, and when you think about the journey that you've been on, I'm curious, like, how has your experience shaped your lens, or as you would say, hermeneutics, right? Um, and, and, and And I ask you that in particular, because we often like to have our guests think about like, what from their own experience and how they read scripture, how can that potentially maybe even be a gift that you might offer others to consider as they read scripture as well? Um, yeah. So I don't know if you wanna share a little bit about that.
0: Yeah,
3: um, I mean, I, I suppose in my mind, there ha- there is a certain trajectory from my early experiences. Uh, I'm not so sure if, if I've been, uh, Consistent in the way I've lived this out, but in my mind, there's this really kind of uh, connected journey uh, for me. Um, so, so that I, I've come to the point, particularly um, my my work around Jesus, read scripture, and and I'm I'm certain now that my dissertation. I didn't realize this then. It took me a few years after uh, my year in grad, my years in graduate studies that I realized that the choice of Jesus, read scripture, the choice of that idea around that around that uh, biblical studies project, but also hermeneutical project was caught up in my own journey, right? So this sense of this variety of ways of reading. So my Jesus read scripture, I do separate chapters on Matthew's portrayal of Jesus, Mark's portrayal of Jesus, Luke's portrayal. And for me, difference was a good thing. I mean, that was just kind of, and again, that was clearly, that was a presupposition I had coming out of my family's experience especially in light of the tension with my brother so um, that, that started to shape that and then and then you know one of the things I did in my um, in my dissertation I had an advisor who was a kind of a traditional biblical scholar uh, but who also had very serious he was a uh, white Southern gentleman but he had very serious experiences uh, many, uh, several of which he shared with me around, uh, race and racial tension. Right. And so, and he often from my perspective, from what I could tell and hearing these stories, and then having met some of his children, I felt this to be true. He often took a side that not all white Southern men would take. Right. And so, and this wasn't just around the academy. This was in his in his community, in his where he lived. And, and I visited his home, right. And so uh, uh, we, we were we were close enough that uh, my children, uh, before he passed away a few years ago, uh, referred to him as, as Grand Moody. Moody Moody Smith is his name. They called him Grand Moody. Uh, but these these experiences around race were, were really interesting because. I wanted to have a bit more conversation around race in my Jesus read scripture project. Uh, And he was still a very traditional biblical scholar, right? So these experiences that he had that we could share and go to lunch and have dinner on and talk about it with our families, he didn't quite want me to get too much of that into the scholarship, right, so that, and uh, so that was kind of an interesting, uh, I mean, you know, this is in the 90s, uh, Yeah, Yeah. I started the program in uh, in, uh, 92, I finished in 99, so uh, some of these uh, ways of navigating biblical text around cultural hermeneutics were really not yet on the table fully, so um, there were real tensions around them, But what Moody uh, at least did not do was he did not say, so I I have this uh, footnote about Sojourner Truth, which Hmm. he he said to me, Emerson, you're going to have to explain that one to the committee because I don't fully understand it. But it's just how Sojourner Truth, you know, talks about, um, I don't read small things like letters. I read men and nations, right? (laughs) So to me, there is a hermeneutical principle in that that yeah. I was using as a way of thinking about what Jesus was doing around scripture. Right. And so, and he's, and, you know, and, and again, I mean, I, I loved Moody. I love Moody, even though he has passed uh, He said to me, he said, I, I want us to keep this, but I, if I don't understand this people on your committee are not going to understand this. So I said, well, it's really shaping this section and this section, this he said, okay. Well, why don't we, At least you know. Let's keep it in footnotes or something, right? So, uh, so that was an interesting kind of experience to start thinking about because my footnotes were really kind of uh, substantive for me Mm -hmm. uh, because they were shaping all the stuff that I was putting in the text. But I didn't feel free to kind of let them right, right, kind of be on the front, on on front and center in, in the page. And so it was a really interesting conversation going on in the academy and yeah. I felt like I was having you know I was I was having part of that now, now Willie Jennings uh and I know uh, some of you know Willie Jennings right Willie mm-hmm. Jennings Christian Imagination was actually there in my grad program at the time he had just started as an assistant professor so he's someone I could run to uh in those early years and just say hey here's what's going on help me think about wow. how to navigate some of this right and he was extremely helpful mm-hmm. uh, Not in my discipline in biblical studies and and the way it was in our grant program was quite, I mean, they just kind of had these dividing walls, right? What seminars you should take and should not take. And so it was just really these dividing walls that were set up. Uh, But Willie was such a, a, a good friend and mentor through some of those attempts to kind of navigate traditional ways of reading, traditional critical ways of reading the Bible, and my own experience, and then this new kind of development that I was trying to figure out, right? So um, Rodney uh, Sadler, uh, with whom I I did the Genesis Liberation book, he and I started a, because we were in grad school together, um, and so we started our own uh, seminar, right? (laughs) And we invited other grad students or only folks who would come, and we were just reading all anything that we can get our hands, so of the road we trod had just recently come out. And so anything we can get our hands on close to cultural hermeneutics, we started to read uh, mm-hmm. as a way of kind of just trying to give some voice to what we were sensing and experiencing and to try to then figure out uh, in grad school-ish type ways, how do we bring these, how, how can we bring these into our projects? How can we bring these into our seminars? How can we start to, you know, push just uh, to, to push in some ways right uh, well at the same time i mean willie willie was uh, again one of those mentors that would say to me you don't want to push too hard because you want to get finished because and, then I, <laughs> and, and I would hear some of those stories about people who pushed too hard and, and were still not finished right who had been mm-hmm. years ahead of me a- and so we're kind of stuck um and i didn't yeah. want that uh, we we had a growing family i felt like i needed to get out <laughs> Uh, there were other things I needed to do, so um, but navigating all of that uh, kind of opened up for me some hermeneutical possibilities, and and, and so uh, to come back uh, to the question, uh, Drew, about hermeneutics, uh, I think one of the things I learned is that uh, the Bible always has a context, and and there I'm not thinking about historical context. Those kinds of things. The Bible always has a contemporary context, right? That's right. So mm-hmm. whether it's in my own family context, whether it's in my church context, my theological tradition has a way of reading uh, Bible, and now the, the place where I teach has a particular context around Scripture, uh, and then and then there are other contexts for Scripture too. And so, right. how do I put those in conversation? And, and, and so for me, it's become. Uh, something I have started to say more and more is that the Bible cannot, and uh, maybe that's not quite the right language, or does not speak, that the Bible needs interpreters to speak for hmm. it. And, and hmm. what, I, what, I, what I mean by that is there are these com- multiple contexts uh, for yes. Scripture that make meaning, that help us make meaning. And it's in that interaction, it's in that interaction that we find so much life and energy right this is kind of what makes it's what makes scripture a living tradition is yes. so that it can speak to so many different contexts in so many different ways throughout the ages uh, but i think recognizing the importance of those contexts is not unimportant right how those contexts themselves help give shape to meaning including the meaning that comes from the biblical text right so mm-hmm. uh the project that i'm uh, just uh, finishing up uh, is is a Good Samaritan, a look at the Good Samaritan, but I'm reading through the Good Samaritan. I have a chapter on the Gospel of Luke in its context. I have a chapter on uh, Luke and ethnicity in the ancient world, but then I have a chapter on Augustine, St. Augustine's reading of, of Luke, uh, of the Parable of, of the Good Samaritan, and then I have yeah. uh, Howard Thurman, and Howard Thurman's preaching mm. around the Good Samaritan, and then I go to the community in the 1970s, the Gospel of St. And, and what they did with, and then finally Harriet Jacobs, and back to my slave narrative work uh, around the Good Samaritan, and so trying to give shape to how these different social contexts, and they all read quite differently. It's That's extraordinary, yeah. uh, and even though each one of them, with the exception of Jacobs, uh, talks about love in, in relationship to the passage, so it's it's just so striking, uh, right? So they have they have these common themes and then yet they have these very serious differences and uh, and for me because I mean I grew up in a, in a family where difference was good uh, you know I kind of appreciate the difference so mm. uh, you know as we often heard as children in my household in my parents household uh, God created difference you know and so it's a good uh, now, now you have to go and kind of live into it you have to go and experience it you have to go and, and allow it uh, to speak, right, to to, uh, mm. to to our present existence. So um, for me, that's a hermeneutical uh, avenue, uh, a way of getting at uh, scripture and life and and meaning and theology, understanding of God, right? So
0: all of that. Doc Emerson, um, with our saint sister, Sojourner Truth, uh, we too don't want to merely read uh, letters, but get into this particular text that you've chosen, um, uh, that uh, our friend Chad Myers I- insists um, is full of um, revolutionary chants um, and uh, surprising ways um, that our Lord responds to that. W- would you open up Mark 11, um, uh, th- this this passage and and this book that you've dedicated so much study to for us in ways that would turn our world upside down?
3: Yeah, um, I think it's uh, it's a a passage that um, that I think has been mislabeled. Uh, so, mm-hmm. and I recognize that in biblical scholarship, uh, there is a tying of this story back as as rightfully rightfully back to the stories of in Zechariah and in uh, the Psalms and in other places where this this movement of Jesus, right? The the movement of Jesus into Jerusalem, especially in this way, uh, feels like preparation for something else, which it is, no doubt. But I think it's been mislabeled. I I think triumphal entry, particularly in our contemporary context, has connotations that are on it, uh, that are, I would say, kind of inappropriate for this passage. And and to me, a triumphal entry suggests something about Jesus's activity that is not quite there so um, uh, you know and, and, and I want us to, to stay with just the first 11 verses but but it's 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 hard not to re, to, to see what he actually does when he gets there right so yeah, right. Uh, <laughs>
2: yeah. and that's why I love Mark's account right yeah that's right. yeah
3: because yeah. when he gets there right it's a, it's a challenge to the financial systems of the yeah. institution. Right, mm-hmm. turning over money tables, uh, right exchange of money, in the selling of goods, and, and 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 my and my friend at uh, 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 at Wake Forest, uh, biblical scholar there, she has recently written on uh, on this story in, in a popular vein, and thinking about all of the others who are unnamed in this passage who are present. So mm-hmm. the the women who stand outside the temple, who are selling some of the small animals, right? Enslaved people who are probably more than likely in charge of uh, the exchanging of money or sitting there those tables, enslaved people. And then the workers, right? That are all around this whole temple precinct, pulling in the goods, bringing goods back and forth, all of these workers. So we got all of these different groups and, and I would venture to say, to, to take those unnamed characters, I imagine uh, that many of those characters are part of the people who are uh, walking alongside Jesus as he's moving into Jerusalem. Those are some of the folks that are present. Uh, uh, and so in some ways, this starts to call into question the idea of a triumphal entry for me. Uh, in, in, in many ways. But it's not just that. There's something more. And, and before I even get to the more, I, I cannot help, because of the time in which we live, uh, read this story in light of what happened on January 6th at the US
0: hospital. Yeah. yeah.
3: So, because that too, for many people, uh, was a religious event. People were yeah. carrying Jesus saves signs. Yep. They were walking around with crosses. That's right. They opened with a prayer. Mm-hmm. Lots of this stuff was being led by a group that self describes as the Jericho March group. Uh, right. So there's all of this religious <laughs> activity that was surrounding and, and part of this crowd, connected to this insurrection. And, and, and I want to be fair. I mean, I, I imagine that there were some people who were there. That as they started to see the storming, they started to say, why are we doing this? Thinking about the Mark 11 story, right? Mm. When Jesus said, some people are going to ask you, why are you doing this? When he went to go, I imagine some of those folks got caught up thinking, (laughs) why are we doing? What has happened? Things are getting out of hand, right? There are people carrying Confederate signs, right? And it's connections to white supremacy. And at the same time, there were crosses marching. I mean, i just... I'm struck by this um this, um uh, this event in our contemporary world as I read this story. And yeah. I think the triumphal entry is a misreading of this story because the way Jesus prepares for this activity, he prepares for this activity by telling his cadre, his disciples, right? Go and get me a donkey.
0: Yeah.
3: He didn't ask them to find a war horse that was just yeah. for violent activity. This yeah. is not the way he entered Jerusalem. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Mm. That type of activity, that type of you know, preparation is really, I think, crucial for the story, for the larger story. Uh, yeah. and, and 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 biblical scholarship is divided, right, in terms of the activity that he performs. Uh, Of the uh, of the the turning over the tables the biblical scholarship itself was divided over Whether that was symbolic or something else. I'm on the side of it being symbolic Maybe it's because of the way Mm -hmm. I was trained, but I'm on the side of it being symbolic And and I think it's symbolic because after Jesus turns over the money uh, Change in the tables, you know, he leaves he departs. He comes back and starts teaching the next day So it wasn't a it wasn't an anti-temple. It wasn't a let's destroy the temple activity it was a time to renovate, a time to rejuvenate, a time to uh, to renew. It was a renewal activity that Jesus was calling for. Temples need money. They, they need money in order to exist. Uh, so it's not that Jesus was saying this place needs to not be in existence. This place just needs to be renovated. It needs to be to, to, to perform in ways that are not taking the monies from the widows, right? Just a couple of chapters later in Mark, right. we're gonna have that widow mm-hmm. who's putting her last bit into the temple treasury. Um, and Jesus is watching, right? Is watching this event. Um, so, um, but it's, it's, it's the preparation, this, this activity of moving into Jerusalem on a donkey that I think is kind of a, a fundamental part of the story uh, mm. of Jesus's journey, his journey with his crowd of people, uh, and i think there are some misfits around him uh who are marching in with him uh, mm. but this is but this doesn't mean this is not some serious event it's a very serious event this is a yeah. this is a yep. this is a a social justice movement here at this moment to uh, to go after the financial side of the institution as we know in contemporary society those are those are real matters those matters have real consequences right in and the political forces will fight, will fight quite hard uh, against and, uh, those types of forces, right? I mean, it's one thing to put fifteen dollars an hour into the bill; it's another thing to actually get it passed. It doesn't get passed. I mean, you know, so it's it's all of a sudden when you stack when you start
0: even to, when like a, a, as as somebody who, you know, isn't a part of that same national reality, looking on from afar, even when your other side of your two-party system. Um, there is no support whatsoever and it still doesn't happen in terms of $15 minimum wage. That is who who are they fighting with that right. none of them supported and they then dropped it like it's right. it's extraordinary. No that's exactly that's
3: exactly my, my, my point. The, the politicians, it doesn't matter what their stripe is when, when you start going after the economic institute the, the elements right that, that start to alter the ec- economic uh, institutions, all these parties rise up, right? Because mm. they're connected to big, 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 big money. Big money and, yeah. and big money's upset. And when big money's upset, fifteen dollars an hour is just too much. That's too fast, right? And so, even though there are clear studies that show that really, if if the cost if the uh, if the minimum wage had been moving along with the cost of living, we should be about twenty four, twenty five dollars an hour right now, hey, and we're right. not anywhere near that, right? Yeah what is it 780 or something? I mean, so it's, it's extraordinary. Uh, so, so Jesus's activity is, is not an insignificant at all, mm. but it is not a violent activity. Yeah. He came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And I just think that's fundamental to the story. Uh, he prepared for it. He told his disciples to go and get one, right? And I'm going to mm. send it back. By the way, when, you know, when I'm finished using
0: it, I'm going to tell them that the master is back. It's, it's a lend. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. that's right. So Emerson, if if I can make explicit um, uh, what I hear you saying is that part of uh, I think in the U.S. you use the term super PACs, right? Like um, there, there isn't big money backing Jesus, um, and and part of him illustrating the the corruption um, in the place where heaven and earth were to meet, um, is that th- there's, a, there's a whole heap of people who are chanting um, revolutionary things, expecting a war tank to roll in. And he comes in on a tricycle, actually making fun <laughs> of all those expectations. That, that there is, there is um, I would say, a, like as an Australian, there's a, a larrikinness to w- what Jesus is doing here. There's there a, a playful um, uh, trickster, troublemaking, um, that actually unmasks that's happening here. And even in verse, um, uh, 11, um, in terms of it being really clear to, to use Ched Meyer's terms that Jesus is casing the joint joint, right? Like he's right. That's right. Absolutely- that's, right.
3: <laughs> that's right. He goes and he looks around and he walks away. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think even right. That, that activity too tells us something about yeah. his intentions. Um, so, um, uh, so, so I think triumphal entry is is not quite <laughs> and, and, I, and I understand where that comes from in Christian tradition but I, mm. but I'm, I'm saddened by the, by the by the, by the misuse of that so those labels uh, become in some ways more powerful or, or take on alternative traditions to the to the biblical story itself and then yeah, create yeah. their own ways of reading right if you call it a triumphal entry then you're really just looking at Jesus's connections to, to King David you're looking at these other kinds of motifs which I'm not saying are not there. I'm just saying they are. They're 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 misleading in many ways. Yeah. They're misleading, right? So they're not uh, Jesus is doing a, 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 a sub- as I saw posted on the chat, right? A subversive activity. Mm-hmm. This is a subversive activity, uh, and that fits. That fits the Jesus of the Gospels. That fits the, the narrative, right? Um, and, uh, particularly Mark's narrative, uh, for sure. Um, yeah.
2: That's good. You know, um, Emerson, I, so I had a few weeks ago, I actually preached at Grantham Church (laughs) and I I preached on this text and it was, it was very shortly after all the insurrection had happened in the Capitol and almost kind of to some of what you're getting at now. I said, you know, it was interesting because I said, the problem isn't necessarily that people came and disrupted an institution because this is a story about someone who's willing to come in and and disrupt and and bring attention to injustice um but some of it is precisely about what how and what they're pursuing in that work right um but we imagine that entering into um central institutions in and of itself and disrupting and calling out injustice that isn't necessarily the problem um and i think that even folks who are usually justice oriented or suddenly making strange moves that almost would condemn Jesus for what he was doing. And yeah. so we have to be able to differentiate between the kind of triumphalistic hopes of MAGA, right? right and right. what Jesus is envisioning and hoping for to end the devouring of widow's homes. So those are two yeah. different things. Yeah, mm. no,
3: that's, that's right. Yeah, Jesus, that's right. Jesus is not, uh, I mean, I, I would say Jesus is not anti-institution. But Jesus is certainly very much interested in uh, engaging those institutions, uh, especially when they mistreat the least of these, right? When when they when they use their power, institutions have power just by the nature of being institutions, right? They have power, and so how are they using that power in ways to assist those uh, for whom they 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 have oversight and care? And Jesus is very much engaged in that kind of. Uh, activity. We see that throughout, right? Uh, but but I mean, just way back at the beginning of Mark, when he heals uh, the man who has uh, uh, leprosy, right? He tells him to go and, and bring what is appropriate, what Moses commanded, right? Take what is appropriate to the priest. Uh, so 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 even early on, I mean, there's this kind of engagement with the institutions from very early on in the story uh and, and then you just kind of see, right? I mean, this, this tension with the religious, which with certain religious leaders, especially those leaders that connect with Jerusalem, uh, I think starts to come out uh, much more symbolically beginning here, right? Beginning here. And then he sticks around and starts doing some teaching and he starts telling some parables in chapter 12, right? The next chapter, he'll tell a parable and, and all of a sudden certain religious leaders say, hey, hey, he spoke that parable against us, right? They start feeling uh, the tension uh, uh, Jesus's
0: movement. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if part of the the problem um, is too quick drawing parallels between different contexts. Um, like I, I think uh, particularly with our sister um, Eshka um, on, on the line and uh, her in- incredible work um, uh, as an Indigenous Khoikhoi uh person in South Africa. And I think about the parallels of um, uh, Nelson Mandela as a leader of the ANC and and coming out of prison those twenty seven years um, uh, in prison and some people expecting and what they're chanting in, in the celebrations is um, this is our time and instead there's a um, there's a bra- embrace of de Klerk which. Um, like a lot of people weren't expecting that. A lot of people were expecting something that was punitive instead of something that was restorative. Um, and that there is an attention to the particularities that the analogies with what happened in the capital, which um, is almost like a pro-imperial power play um, from those in power um, uh, that are seeking to undermine, or, I mean, it would almost be like a, a non-violent wing of the IRA. Like the, the, the way that we, uh, that's, the, that's the surprise, right? And I even think, and Emerson, I'd love to hear you comment on this. Um, some of the ways that um, uh, white supremacists um, forms of evangelical chaplaincy to Trumpism have um, almost used a ultra-masculine, Christ um, and um, Jesus in the temple and this display of a, apparent rage instead of <laughs> verse 11 makes quite clear that this is a, a planned nonviolent direct action. He's, he's casing the joint. Um, this is all calculated. This isn't Jesus having a bad day and losing his stuff um, uh, as he goes to pray, um, that this instead is a, a prophetic action in the tradition of, of the Hebrew prophets. And, um, what what does it do to our reading to consider um, the premeditative um, nature of Jesus's actions um, as opposed to um, uh, turning this text into uh, a pretext for um, white, powerful men exerting rage and it being a godly thing?
3: Yeah, no, I think that that's a great question, uh, and, and you know, this is where this is where. My hermeneutic of uh, the Bible cannot necessarily speak for itself. <laughs> mm-hmm. we, need it, we need interpreters becomes uh, important for me. So, so, so sometimes even right the, around this story, for example, John tells a slightly alternative account. Right. Yeah. So, in the John account, Jesus kind of comes across as a bit more. Uh, uh, as you use the phrase, that the masculinist uh, okay. a version of himself. He doesn't send the disciples. He goes and gets his own donkey. He doesn't, uh, you know, he, 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 he said, he makes a claim about the kingship. So the Johannine version of this uh, creates some tensions, I think, with the Mark version of it. And, 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 and so I want to I kind of, I want to be fair, right? I want to say, well, okay, that's there too. But I think part of what that opens up then is an opportunity for uh, contemporary Christians to, who, who engage scripture in ways that, uh, that, they, that they wanted to kind of be involved in contemporary discourse and life and practice uh, to recognize that it's, the story itself is more complicated, right? When we, when we look at uh, the whole of scripture. And so there's this theological uh, or, or, or uh, narrative difference, that's there that I have to I have to make some choices about. Um, and so um, to, to, that doesn't mean to me that, okay, I'll take Mark and you can have John and we go our separate ways, <laughs> right? I don't think it's that simple, but I do think it's, it's more complicated than what I sometimes make it, right? And so uh, a, a simple reading of Mark and allow the Mark story of Jesus to become that, that's my choice, that's my story. The John one, I'm a little unsure what to do with it, in relationship to uh, uh, the, right, the, the analogy of the, of the January 6th insurrection. I mean, to be honest with you. So that, that's mm-hmm. a little more tension. Uh, John seems to fit their model a bit better. So I've got to find another way to kind of, uh, to, to push back, uh, to find an alternative. And I think script, scripture, I would say scripture kind of allows for some, for some alternative scripture allows for some of this diversity. Um, but not all, not all of those voices uh, can be held up at the same time in the same way, right? So
0: mm.
3: that, that's part of the tension. Um, but I, I do appreciate you uh, kind of raising uh, and, and kind of pushing, right? The, and, I, and I recognize, I mean, that's, that's what you all have a global audience. And so, right, what does it mean to use an analogy from one particular place? Uh, it's just what that is. It is a particular local, uh, narrative that, uh, speaks to a particular context, but it it does, it does not. In fact, it cannot serve as an, an, uh, as a model for other contexts. Um, it Mm. might be useful, but it might not. And so scripture then has to kind of open up other particularities and other spaces, uh, for other interpreters. Uh, And and this is where I think, again, the the Bible needs interpreters who are engaged in that kind of way to to bring Scripture into those environments in a way that is, you know, true to the Jesus of the Gospels and true to Jesus, to the the Jesus of the God that I believe is a nonviolent God. Right. So Mm -hmm. I have certain kind of theological presuppositions. I believe that God loves difference again, right in light of my own family's tradition. I believe that so. So I have certain theological presuppositions that certainly are involved in my own hermeneutical decision. Um, but I don't want to be naive and to, and, and to say uh, Scripture always helps me, <laughs> right? I mean, there there are sometimes there are sometimes when I have to push back, right? I, I had. Um, uh, my recent uh, uh, work with the Common English Bible a few years ago came out in 2011. But we had we had 2,000 ministers, uh, and we had you know we had 1,500 of them were in uh, North America, and 500 were outside of North America. Uh, do an initial reading of uh, I think we had Isaiah, we had the Psalms, out Genesis. We had about a, a dozen uh, texts from the Common English Bible, and so we wanted to hear from some ministers around that. So anyway. I reached out to my father and said, you know, Dad, can you do a reading of, you know, da-da-da-da-da. was happy to do it, da 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 And he came back to me and he says, I only have one question. I like what's going on here, uh, but I have one question. Is there a way that you can manage the slave text? Can you do something different with those, uh, right? And so I said, well, no, I mean, this is a translation. This is not a, we have to find a way to manage those texts differently. Uh, we just can't let it. Right, slaves obey your masters. Be the final word. So I got to find some way to, and so sometimes scripture itself, the Bible itself, presents uh, challenges and tensions, and and that and that and that too, right, is, is sometimes part of our theological differences uh, with those who have more um, uh, violent theologies. Uh-huh. Uh, some of that they're drawing from, right? There's certain apocalyptic text that they see as, this is the time, this is now, right? And so, and and lots of the evangelical rhetoric around uh, Trump in particular, this latest uh, uh, moment uh, has been in those, in that kind of venue, right? This is a type of Cyrus, it's a type of figure Mm, who is not necessarily part of Israel, but so so there's an attempt to find a way of reading Uh, that fits into their theological, along with their theological presuppositions, Um, and and that's, you know, I mean, on the one hand, if we are to engage that, you know, on the one hand, we can talk about misreadings, uh, uh, but I'm also reminded, right, by a number of uh, particularly some post-colonial readers who say, you know, misreadings are usually pretty good, I mean, and what they mean by that is not not good (laughs) in the sense of they're necessarily good to the cultural context of the Bible, scripture, but they're good in the sense that they they're 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 thriving and they're lively. They're good in the sense that they they move people, right? Um, mm. But what happens when they move people in violent ways? What happens when they move people in what we might consider you know the wrong ways, the wrong direction? That that that's more challenging. Uh, that's more challenging. So, um, and I think you know thinking about our hermeneutical lens is really crucial, right? So for, for many of us, I mean, Jesus becomes a hermeneutical lens. Uh, and for others, even though they might confess Jesus, hold Jesus in high regard, call Jesus Lord, uh, a careful reading of some of the Jesus stories may not necessarily be the most fun, right? All of scripture, right? It's kind of a leveling effect. That Bible, uh, right. And that's, that's, a hermeneutical, that's a hermeneutical stance, a hermeneutical position. Um, if, if one knows, I would just say, you know, one needs to be kind of fully aware of one's hermeneutical presuppositions. One needs to be aware of that, that they're doing. What they're doing with that right and so right. Um, and recognize that sometimes it's hard for us to have a conversation because we have very different starting points uh, mm. and so um I, I want to be clear about my own presuppositions i think that's that, that's helpful for people to understand how i might be reading the text right so
2: um, yeah. it's interesting you say so we've been um some teaching um the theology three class uh piece justice and reconciliation. And and I've been saying to some of my colleagues, I haven't seen you as much because, you know, we're on different days teaching these days. But um, I've shared with some of my uh, other colleagues that this semester, what has been fascinating to me is precisely having conversations, especially around peace and violence, because we're reading uh, J. Denny Weaver's book, God Without Violence. Mm -hmm. And the second half of his book, he actually spends a lot of time um, around scripture and how he reads scripture and thinking about... Texts and reading different texts in different ways, and you know, and yeah. and for him, it's the Jesus story, right? Is how he's going to sort through all that. So he he's actually very transparent. In fact, that's one of the things I I want them to see how transparent he is about every move that he's making, explaining, letting you see. Um, but but it is fascinating how much like some students, to be fair, not everyone, but some. I mean once you actually get down to the nitty gritty of what it actually means to take seriously the Jesus story as a like it's almost like repulsive to some student it was just it's just mm-hmm. fascinating but they wouldn't have said that when we first started because I I kind of gave them a clue of where we're going just to kind of warm them up a little bit and they're oh yeah you know they're all ready to go but once you actually have to make some really difficult um interpretive moves right with the text and deal with Um, Challenging reads of like how to make sense of conquest, right? Um, Then all of a sudden, you know, I don't want to say that Jesus off the table, but but the Jesus narratives are certainly being uh, marginalized in the conversation all of a sudden. And so, but and for me, I, I don't like look. I'm like this class you know, I don't impose my convictions, but I do want you all to be honest about what you're doing and to name and be able to describe what you're doing at a given moment, which I think is really helpful for students to kind of process um, the commitments and convictions that they have,
3: yeah. Yeah, no, no, I think, right, I think it's really important work for us all to kind of name our presuppositions, to name our moves, right, to name, uh, I was talking to someone yesterday inside of a larger committee meeting on campus, and this was actually my, my first speaking. Right? This is distance. I was the first time I was in a committee meeting face to face on campus. And it felt really strange. But anyway, but, but they started to talk about some of the worship practices at the university and how it could be um, an opportunity for us to. Um, to um reconcile with one another to think about reconciliation in these worship practices and everybody was nodding their head and, and i you know that's fine that's okay worship can be that kind of but then i wanted to i raised my hand because i said i, I just want to know what songs we're going to sing right because the specificity matters mm-hmm. yeah. right if you're always if every song you're going to sing is jesus is my friend jesus is my friend jesus is my friend and you're never going to have a song in which you lament about right. what had what's wrong with the world and That's how right. things have not right. So so yeah. so we need to have a mixture. If if we're going to have reconciliation, we need to have a memory. We need to rec- recognize that reconciliation. is a journey, right? And we're we're in a particular context. And so uh, so the specificity. We have to name, uh, you know, Drew, kind of what you're pointing at there with your students. We have to be able to name those things and recognize our presuppositions and our biases, right? Uh, and how we're reading Jesus right? How we're re- even how we're reading Jesus, how we understand God. So yeah. where we come from, right? The nature of our traditions and how they've given shape to certain things that we think and don't think. And, and who's in and not in? How wide is yep. our table, right? Is there it, When we talk about hospitality, how wide is our table, really? Yeah. Right? And how Emerson, wide is our table? Yeah.
0: As way of analogy, I wonder, it's not only um, what songs will be sung, but how will they be sung? Like, is it going to be on the yeah. one of the three or is it going to be on the two and the four? And what That's does that right. say about, like, That's how exactly we're reconciling? Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder if um, the that kind of specificity um, is what I w- would want to highlight about um, uh, thinking about the the January, or almost how we exegete January 6th in, in mm. the U.S., is um, what January 6th was was never an option for our Lord. Like... Um, not all violences are the same and um, the violent temptation um, of our Lord uh, wasn't a violence from above. It was a violence from below. And uh, I'd be interested to hear um, uh, Marcus Borg and Dominic Crossan uh, made a case for the direction of the city that um, Jesus was arriving in versus um, the Romans who it being Passover, um, it's one of the most volatile and contentious times for um, uh, uh, Jewish people because it's a literal celebration of our God. He is, uh, Christ the oppressed and is in the business of setting the oppressed free. This is a time that our Lord is riding in, not on a tank, but on a trike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, uh, in, in the midst of that, um, they make the case that um, it was through the other gate of the city from the opposite direction mm-hmm. that you would see the Romans Um, actually arriving on their war horses to suppress a revolution from below, which for me um, is much more uh, um, like uh, the January 6 realities. Um, Here is um, a a violence from those who have coercive power um, uh, trying to assert a power which they feel is slipping away. Um, uh, and we we can discuss if if that's um, uh, reality or or myth, but that's the narrative in which they're functioning in um, versus Jesus and the different options that are coming in from the different side of the city and why people would want a tank to meet their tanks um, and how Jesus provides a a trike and and the implications for that. Would you speak to um, some of those realities? Because I sometimes wonder if that piece is missed, around um, where our Lord is located, um, then, it'll, it, then we open up John 2 and the discussion is, well, when is it right um, uh, to kind of lose it? And I mm-hmm. wonder if we lose the narrative of our Lord completely and there is nothing, there's no word that can be said that saves and heals and delivers um, because we've associated, um, it, it almost becomes a Gnostic, Jesus doesn't have his feet on the ground in some place.
3: Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's kind of interesting to think about kind of ancient culture and the historical uh, uh, timeline, the the historical context of this particular moment in the Mark 11 narrative, uh, who's coming to Jerusalem, right? And how are they coming? And and we know, right? We know that there are lots of uh, Jewish people coming for the the feast, uh, for this festival and uh, I mean, you know, uh, Borg and Crossan and others are are right to to remind us of uh, Roman presence, partly because usually the way it works in the ancient world, when it's not high feast period, folks are uh, Roman presence is way out of town. Right. It would take mm-hmm. them a day, day and a half to march quickly to Jerusalem. They're just not as troubled as when it's high feast time. And so high feast time, they are really close by They're right? Just in case all these folks getting together, uh, they, even if they don't really understand Romans, that is, even if the Romans don't really understand this idea of Jewish teaching around Messiah, what a Messianic figure is like, they at least know enough that when crowds get together, there could be trouble, right? And, and if you get big crowds around festivals, who knows what could happen? um and and we see it as well in the narrative right jesus loves a good crowd he's got a crowd that's with him he's got a small crowd that an entourage that travels with him through all the story he loves a good crowd he feeds 5 000 right i mean we got all these stories around crowds but we also know he also jesus also knows how fickle crowds can be so it's not too long not too many verses after this passage where a crowd will say crucify him so mm. crowds themselves uh have ways of shifting and the romans know that right that's just the common right common idea around crowds uh, part of why this act is clearly in my mind a symbolic act is because if jesus went into the temple turned over the tables and tried to actually hold up all of the activities the romans would have intervened this isn't what they would not yeah. have allowed they would not have allowed an attempt by any jewish person or leader especially one like jesus who apparently had a small entourage around him to completely uh hinder the activities the normal activities of the temple on a regular basis that would have created chaos and the romans that's what exactly why they were there yeah they did not intervene they did not intervene and jesus left after the symbolic act and came back on the next day and started teaching in those same places right so um so it does speak to um, as you uh, kind of set this up, right? These two ways of thinking about power, and two ways of acting out of those power structures, and how then those are opportunities perhaps for us to think about, you know, kind of where we fall, where we sit, where our where our theologies lead us, where our ways of thinking about God and politics, God and life, right? Uh, politics in the best sense, right? In the in the best sense, not in the sense mm-hmm. of just just voting, but in the best sense of living with neighbors, right? Uh, we, we have to, right? So politics is a necessary part of being human in many ways, right? How we structure societies and and think about how how, how do we how do we fund our schools, right? How do we right? How do we care for those among us? It, it, if, if there is a fire, do we have enough water in the area, right? And yeah. do all of our neighborhoods have enough water, right? And you know, if, we're, if we're trying to think about uh, food distribution, uh, what 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 sides of the river where we live, what sides of the river get the major supermarkets? And are there enough mm-hmm. major supermarkets to, to go everywhere, right? So, so food, these are political matters, right? These are matters mm-hmm. of politics. And, and we have people who are in certain positions of power, but, but, but here, right, we have Jesus and the Romans as kind of two models, at, at least those are two models. There might be more than those two, but at least those two for helping us think about something like everyday living together with one another uh, mm. and, and how we use uh, even the limited power we may have. Um, um, we're, we're all, uh, we might not all be elected officials, but we all live in a political system and make political choices. So yeah. every day we make political choices, and so uh, how do we use the limited powers we have to to care for those uh, around us, those who are near and those who are not as near, right? So those in our immediate families, our immediate loved ones, in our immediate churches, and then those who are surrounding those spaces. Um, so the kinds of things that we think about God, theological, you know, the kinds of ways we exegete scripture, the ways we we, we, we wrestle with scripture and allow the stories of bible to kind of enter our world our, our political our political matters uh they, they have direct impact on the way we live our lives right so um i mean if, if we pray the prayer of jesus right give us our daily bread that's 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 a political statement
0: that's right yeah
3: so that's not that's not some spiritual uh it is spiritual it is, so it is spiritual but but the political is spiritual and the spiritual is political. So uh, Jesus's prayer is quite clear about that. Um, keep us away from evil. What does evil look like for us, right? This is not just evil because I'm, if if I'm in my office here at home and you know and 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 I it's not what I do to myself really here. That's not necessarily evil, except you know I mean I, I mean I understand I, I can have some kind of struggle. I can have an internal struggle. Uh, but what, what do my practices look like in relationship to others, right? If I'm praying about evil, then evil enters into our ways of living uh, politically, in the best sense, again, of that word, of uh, political word. so. Yeah.
2: I'm curious, um, maybe just to expand the conversation a little bit, I'm, I don't know if I've ever heard you, I, I know you've spent a lot of time with the Gospel of Mark in general, um, but I'm, I'm curious, um I guess my, my, what drew you to Mark maybe is one of my questions in particular, mm-hmm. but, and then I'm curious also, I mean, I've heard people, different people kind of emphasize different aspects of Mark and all, and I'll put my cards on the table in terms of like, you know, like when I read Mark, like I see him like, well, number one, the, the most human side of Mark, of Jesus. Right. And I really appreciate, you know, his interactions, um, that I see him as subversive. So like when they talk about the messianic secret, uh, for me, that's like this nonviolent, revolutionary subversive action. Like that's how Mm -hmm. I read Mark, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I see that connected to how like Mark plays out this story where he goes in and he he, um, scouts out the joint and then leaves, right? So anyway, but I'm curious um, when you read, probably seeing so much more than I'm seeing, I'm kind of curious what you see uh, more broadly and then maybe how that connects to, if, if you see connections between um, this Mark 11 passage as well.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think more broadly, uh, uh, for me, yeah, Mark was, has, has been very striking because it feels so real, right? It feels so fresh mm-hmm. and not to be on gospel. I mean, I grew up on the gospel of John. I mean, that was a very, in my early childhood, we had a, we had a guest room my parents worked for the American Bible Society, and so we handed out Bibles, and we we had whole New Testament Bibles, and then we had the Psalms, and then we had the Gospel of John separately. So I grew up just reading the Gospel of John a lot, mm-hmm. um, and and loved it, and loved it, and, and still do. Uh, Mark, uh, in my uh, later years, in, um, there's a certain kind of rawness to Mark, so yeah. uh, that I have come to really deeply appreciate. Um uh and uh something like right the 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 un uh, unapologetic story about jesus being baptized by john something as simple as that jesus came down there and you know john was baptizing lots of people and jesus too got baptized by john and he just moves on you know and it's not matthew has a story around uh right giving explanation for why jesus got baptized luke Luke is even trickier because you never actually physically witness Jesus being <laughs> yeah. baptized by John because yeah. John has been imprisoned. And it's like, whoa whoa whoa, 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 what's happening? Right. So he moves around kind of the storyline and then the gospel of John. It never happens. Right. Mm. In fact, Jesus himself was baptizing. Oh, well, not really. In chapter four, John says yeah. <laughs> his, 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 his followers were doing the baptism. So John Jesus never gets baptized by John that that's and that's such a powerful uh the baptism scene is so powerful for the early church yes yeah. and mark is just you know mark is just laying it out there he just tells you the story like that uh and so i i, I that's really striking to me at the beginning hmm. uh, to start that and uh, and so and i kind of see some of that along the way right um uh, yeah. you get down to uh, the healing of the uh, of the man who has leprosy, um, right? Jesus gets upset. Jesus gets angry. That's only in Mark. Jesus gets really upset. Uh, and what's he upset about? And, and 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 I mean, the interpreters are all over the place. He's upset at the disease. He's upset upset at a system that labels this a disease, right, an illness, and therefore this man is ostracized. He's upset at the man for coming and disturbing the ministry. To me, I mean, all of those are, are interesting ideas. I don't know exactly why Jesus gets angry, but Mark told me Jesus got angry. Yeah. And I appreciate that as a contemporary mm-hmm. reader, who's who's who who is attracted to the complexities of scripture because for me, and again, I just speak for myself here. When my 16 year old brother had those tensions with my parents around scripture, I think in some ways, I mean, I accepted the Lord Jesus into my heart before that, but I feel like that's really when I came to faith. It Mm -hmm. was when that tension happened, I felt like this is really lively. There's a richness to this conversation that as a 10-year-old, I could not understand, did not understand, but there was something attractive in there. And so the complexities that I see in, in Mark and the, the, the unapologetic nature to say that Jesus is this or that, as Matthew and Luke tend to do, and John certainly even more so, again, it's not it doesn't make me less attractive to the others, but I just appreciate Mark's rawness uh, in that regard. Mm. Uh, and so uh, for, for the Mark 11 story, uh, that's where the John piece comes in, right? Uh John has this, right? Of course, we know that when when Jesus is crucified in the Gospel of John, there are words that we don't have tone. We don't have the tone. We just have the words. So we don't know what Jesus, we know what he says, how he says it, we don't know. But in the Gospel of John, he says it it is finished, right? It is finished. And I I want to put a more somber tone on it because usually what we hear in the tradition is, it is finished, right? It is kind of this triumphal, uh, Jesus rising on the cross, and, and I'm not sure that's what John intended, so hmm. tone we don't know, but I do recognize that that's different words from what Mark and then Matthew sure. have, right? My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? I don't know how you can put triumphal tone on those words at okay. all, right? Why have you forsaken me? Uh, so uh, there's, a, there's a certain kind of rawness in the gospel of Mark, and then, you know, just kind of as a side note, I mean, I discovered years later, but I did discover this when I was in grad school, that uh, the Gospel of Mark was Howard Thurman's favorite gospel. And I thought, okay, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm good with that, you know. I can't <laughs> go
0: wrong. You can't go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. So.
0: Uh, and I, I wonder if if part of that rawness is that, um, that it, the misnomer that you've named in terms of the language of, of triumph, which we are so stuck in thinking about um that to see the cross through the resurrection um triumph isn't the right language like i'm i'm always struck by how much people um are keen to quote the apostle paul that we're more than conquerors and really what they I mean is we're conquerors <laughs> like it's like no no no. there's something different that's actually going on if we see the cross through the resurrection this isn't just, like if we're thinking um in roman imperial ways Triumph is the language, like that. That, that is the. But there's the something um, that undoes the um, classical. Is this a comedy or tragedy? Questions um, when those realities are, are shot through with with resurrection, and, and we're able to look at it in its its full in its fullness. I, I guess Emerson. This only occurred to me as you were sharing um, uh, just then. It, the, for Those of us for whom um, a rejection of violence for what Desmond Tutu would call a force more powerful, um, that not being a, a secondary gospel issue, but actually about the claim that Jesus is Lord and the implications of what it is to have a, a crucified, nonviolent Messiah, to allow that to be central, is some of the pushback um, some might say is, well, it's only Matthew's gospel that you actually get this sermon on the mount stuff You get, you know the there's the, the brief version in in luke and the sermon on on the Plain, but you get none of that in mark you, you get no um those convictions w- w- would your case be that um what we have in mark is enough um to point towards what we get explicitly in the sermon on the mount uh or, or is this some of the importance of not flatten, flattening the diversity um, of the gospel witnesses. How, how would you um, r- respond to those who are like, um, well, where's the enemy love in Mark's gospel?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would, I would start with that last part about uh, the diversity of the gospels. I would want to, to uphold those different voices as, uh, you know, uh, possibly in the same choir, but but they're just not quite there's some there's some dissonance dissonance that works right dissonance that works when a choir sings so hmm. um, um, and it's not that it's not that there aren't motifs of the sermon on the mountain there but they're they're different right so if you think about even something like I mean the only time it says in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus loved someone is uh, the, the rich man who yeah. didn't follow right and then Jesus looked at him. And loved him uh, mm. and it's someone who didn't follow so I mean that that kind of there's lots there I think that means the,
0: the, yeah the, that's the, not enemy following. love
3: yeah right so just you're hanging on to someone who is not willing to follow you and, and Jesus still loves that person right so that's a that's a really powerful motif there um mm. I think I think about you know to go back to what some of what you were saying at the beginning um this this idea I mean this is still it's still a gospel that taps, and even the Mark 11 story taps into the triumph is not quite the right term, right? And our language mm-hmm. matters. The language itself is a place of struggle, right? As bell hooks would say. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. so we, we've got to find appropriate language that speaks to uh, what we hear, right? What we see and what we, what we wish to live out. Uh, we have to find the appropriate language. and So if it's not triumph, this doesn't mean it's not celebration, It's not celebratory. This is a celebratory event, but it's the kind of celebration where we don't just expect uh, those who have uh, uh, the funds or those who who live in the big house to throw the party and we all show up. This is the kind of celebration where everybody's laying down their clothes on the ground everybody's involved in throwing there, right? They're going out and finding the donkey form, And there. so there's a communal celebratory activity. This is the kind of celebration where everybody, it's a, it's a, it's a potluck dinner and you bring what you can, you bring your best, right? You bring what you can. And, and we're going to have plenty. We don't have to worry about anyone not having enough. It's that kind of celebration, which is a different kind of Jesus is Lord celebration than, um, uh, and one that that depends on uh, those who have to supply for others who, who might have less, right? So, um, uh, and then and then have these expectations after they do it, right? So, um, uh, for for sorry, sorry, we 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 don't agree with you. How could you not agree with me when I funded this whole this whole project, right? Uh, <laughs> that's those are real those are real tensions uh that, that people experience in reality right so we, we don't want to make this decision because the funding might run out but well, well, what good is that what kind of mm-hmm. celebration and movement is that that we can't speak to the truths and the realities that that exist around us so uh, if we're following the jesus of mark 11 where the celebration is much more communal Mm. Uh, and much more uh in, in involving the whole the, the whole right and and then uh right those who, and, and even those who are unnamed uh, even those who are not present in the text right and we know they exist we know they are there just like uh when you were uh, mentioning jared about uh, the romans right we know that the romans are close by but they don't show up in our story But we also know that there are enslaved people who are surrounding this temple who are doing lots of work. And we know that there are women who are selling the small animals to the guests who have come in, the religious pilgrims who have made that trip, many of whom are women themselves and their children, right? So we know, even if they're not named, that they are also part of the story. And they have to be part of the way we tell the story. They have to be part of our memory so that way we can... I think, utilize the story in more effective ways than perhaps the tradition has done. And we can wow. relabel it. Right? We can we can change some of these labels like triumphal entry in ways that speak more to the present condition and speak more to the reality in which we find ourselves and speak more to what I would say is uh, a loss of imagination. We need to recover our imaginations to, yeah. to, 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 to make sure there's plenty of room at the table. Uh, so... And if we can look around our tables and see someone who is not present, then we need to alter the table. We need to change the structure of the table to make sure that that happens so other people can be included, other voices can be heard. Um, And I think that's what it means to follow a Jesus who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good, Emerson. That's so good.
2: Um, um, Can you just say a quick word about... Um, your newest book, Gen- uh, The Genesis of Liberation. Um, kind of yeah, just yeah. briefly, just sketch out for uh, our audience, you know, what's the book about? What were you hoping to do um, to be, as people are thinking about yeah. considering
3: um, the text? So that was an attempt to, um, after coming out of the True to Our Native Land uh, project, and, and I tend to, to be involved, uh, I tend to seek out, I should say, uh, uh, Communal projects. It's just kind of um, the way my own um, life and selection has gone. So after the True Our Native Land uh, project, where we were try- attempting to read the New Testament from the perspective of African American experience and looking at African American history and poetry and and uh, events uh, to try to read the gospel stories uh, through um, you know issues of trauma, et cetera. Um, after that, after that uh, experience, uh, w- one of the areas and resources I was reading for some of that project, um, I was tapping into what what are called uh, so-called slave narratives. That's usually what people refer to them as. I refer to them as uh, uh, freedom narratives because we don't actually have a narrative written by someone who was still enslaved. So every yes. person, every narrative that we have is from a person who escaped human bondage, right? So they're freedom narratives. But anyway, I I was looking at those as as part of that work and I realized um, in conversation with Rodney uh, that there was lots of engagement with biblical text in those narratives Mm. and so the project attempts to explore uh, those um, some of our findings um, and so to attempt to read scripture in the way 19th century, pre-Civil War, um, the way African-Americans were reading it in the middle of that context, right? And so, and there, and there are lots of things we discovered along the way, um, you know, so, something like like the Exodus, for example, the Exodus, which you can see in lots of places uh, in, in literature. I was just reading something the other day and someone made a big deal out of the importance of Exodus for African-American theology and history. Uh, but actually, the Exodus motif is quite minimal in the slave narrative tradition. In those wow. narratives, pre-Civil War, Exodus was not a dominant motif. It wow. became much more prominent post-Civil War in post-Civil War narratives, discourses, sermons, etc. And I think part of that was because people were writing from the context of human bondage, right? And even if they themselves individually, they knew that experience and now they were speaking on behalf of those who were still enslaved. And the Exodus motif is about a story about God who frees, and and that had not yet fully happened. And so I think, again, that was speaking to their immediate context. So the Genesis of Liberation is an attempt to tackle texts like that Pauline texts around slavery, other texts um, uh, that, that, that were prominent in the narrative tradition in the pre Civil War era. And then we make some kind of hermeneutical decisions at the end of that book about what that teaches us about uh, reading the Bible, reading scripture, right? And so paying attention to uh, the margins, paying attention to, and that's where, you know, my, my, my language around even when the texts do not mention people, right? I think it's important. And again, this is my own kind of hermeneutical uh, uh, presuppositions, uh, right? Finding uh, those places in the text. I like to think about minor characters. I like to, in my classrooms, uh, I like to have students engage and imagine, right? Because of this, I think, great loss of imagination in theological circles. I like to imagine I have my students imagine characters, so if we were to take the Mark 11 story, I might start a class off by having students imagine that they are a member of the crowd or something, and retell that story, or or what do they see, right, tap into their senses around that event, and that itself kind of opens up really rich conversations around interpretation, Uh, but that comes from the the hermeneutical tradition of paying attention to 19th century African American reading of scripture. Uh,
2: No, but this has been really good, Emerson. Um, thank you so much. Um, and and I should mention, I think I already mentioned to you before that um, that so we have multiple groups going right now, and so one of our groups is doing the Africana Bible study, um, and so um, and so we know that eventually we'll get to your work. I I think you're you know the intertestamental right. What is it like, Fourth Maccabees, or what did you do for that one? <laughs> <laughs> is that right
3: Maccabee. yeah
2: yeah what yeah, i thought so so yeah, so um so eventually we'll get to yours we're just in the very beginning we've been reading the little intro readings and i think they're going to get to genesis this coming um this coming week so but uh thank you for all your scholarship and uh, thank you for making the time to be here with the inverse community and i know our audience is going to appreciate this conversation a lot
3: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Jared, Drew, and, and friends. Thank you so much. Uh, okay, listen, if, if people want
0: to uh, find and follow your work, uh, other than the books that uh, we've named, uh, what's, what's the best place for, for people to um, uh, uh, follow your work and witness?
3: Yeah. Um, I'm not as active on social media as my dear colleague <laughs> Drew, uh, but I do have a Twitter account. So Emerson B. Powery uh, uh, is my Twitter account, and um, um, that's probably the primary place. I don't have a Facebook account, so um, it's it's I have Twitter, and I have you know the the, the work that comes out uh, in kind of hard copy form. So. And stuff that shows up in lots of right uh, I do lots of stuff for uh, working preacher which is mm-hmm. works exegetical pieces there's a new uh, nine volume project that came out for preachers called connections I was it's a number of series of short exegetical readings for those um, so uh, stuff that comes out and like that and, I, and I'm, I'm actually working on a new a new, uh, a new big bible project that, that is uh we're, we're right in the middle um, i'm right in the middle of securing the, the writers for the bible that contributors for study notes but we're trying to focus this around uh the, the university college audience uh and and mm-hmm. because we feel like what's out there now doesn't quite speak to that audience quite mm-hmm. directly so We're trying to do uh, ways uh, of thinking about culture and religious ideas that kind of connects with that. So I've been very intentional to try to get lots of undergraduate teachers involved in this project. Uh, So people who, you know, what what kind of creative things do they do in the classroom? We want that to show up in the Bible itself. Um, So, but yeah, as far as my social media, I'm a little, I'm a little behind on that score.
2: So, yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you
0: so much.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Jared.
2: Thanks Emerson. Take care. Thanks Drew. Okay. Have a good night.
0: The inverse podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreoncom slash inverse.